From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week, we continue our conversation with Adel Iskandar, Professor of Global Communications at Simon Fraser University, about the rise, history, and future of the Al Jazeera network following the feud between Saudi Arabia, its allies, and Qatar. Later in the program, we pay tribute to prominent media scholar Professor Jack Shaheen, who passed away on July 9th at the age of 81. Professor Shaheen's seminal work, Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People, tells the long history of vilification of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans on the silver screen. All this coming up. Stay with us. Last month, Saudi Arabia and its allies, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, cut off all diplomatic and economic ties with Qatar and imposed a land and air blockade under the pretext of Qatar's alleged support for, quote, terrorism. Soon after, these countries turned the screws on Qatar by giving it 10 days to comply to a list of 13 demands. The deadline came and went and the standoff continues as the Saudis have deemed Qatar's response to its demands as, quote, overall negative and lacking any content. According to news reports, the list of demands includes a dictate to shut down the Al Jazeera network and all media outlets funded by Qatar directly or indirectly, such as Arabi 21, Middle East Eye, Al Arabi Al Jadid, or the New Arab, and Rast. Last week, I spoke with Professor Adel Eskandar of Simon Fraser University about the backdrop to the conflict and the history of Al Jazeera network in its early years, focusing on Al Jazeera Arabic, which was launched in 1996. This week, we continue the conversation by tracing the history of Al Jazeera English and its break from the editorial style of its Arabic counterpart. Adel Eskandar is an assistant professor of global communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He's the author, co-author, and editor of several works, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, and Al Jazeera, the story of the network that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. He's also co-editor of Jadalia online. So the English language network, when it came into being, was set up in such a way, to the chagrin of some people who were big fans of the Arabic network during its early days, was set up to to essentially mirror the BBC, only with a focus on the global south. They were one of the, the early slogans was, everybody watches CNN, but who is CNN watching? And so the idea here is that they are more connected to the local news than foreign correspondents. So the the impetus behind it and the message behind it is that we are going local. We are doing local or hyper-local or we're bringing in journalists who are reporting from their milieus, their atmospheres, their contexts, their experiences, their countries. And that's going to give us an unvarnished view 
of the realities of these particular places. But at the same time, with the strong funding that is not unlike a major private network, major corporate network. So with uh, a billion dollars later and four broadcast studios in Washington, D.C., London, Doha, and Kuala Lumpur, the station was really a force to be reckoned with from the moment that it came into being. Any news that they would cover would become news. And you would remember, I don't know if you will recall, but for some time they had this slogan that said, setting the news agenda. Hmm. That was their slogan. And it is quite correct. If, you, if you're that substantial, that large, that kind of reach, and they were able to pay their way into various markets in Europe and in sub-Saharan Africa and, and in North America and elsewhere, that has really given them a, a massive push and, and created tremendous amount of visibility for the product itself. The product was intriguing because these areas were presented in a way that was much more nuanced, much more contextual, much more sophisticated and much more historically grounded than any of the coverage that existed prior. And the long form, the commitment to not rushing or not reducing the discussion to sound bites and also opening discussions, like long open-ended conversations about circumstances in, in these countries, set it aside and, and really helped create a, a large and growing audience for the station. But like any experiment, it does have its its downside. And I think that downside is very much connected to what happened in the, in the Middle East during and after the uprisings. Uh, like any network that happens to find itself literally at the heart of a story, and Al Jazeera English, because of its immense reach and the, the large number of bureaus that they had all over the world, wherever there was a story, Al Jazeera happened to be there. It would take... CNN or BBC or The Guardian or New York Times a day or two to even get someone on site, mm. whereas wow. Al Jazeera was literally there as events unfolded everywhere. That is the advantage of having such a massive budget, an open-ended budget, in fact. Like Nobody knows what the budget for Al Jazeera is. Al Jazeera English alone was created with a, a billion dollars worth of mm. operations. Mm. So... There, so we're talking about billions of dollars spent literally every year mm. to keep this operation going. So, And their salaries are relatively competitive, admittedly, compared to most other operations. So all this to say that Al Jazeera was always in the right place at the right time. And when it came to the uprisings, I mean, they were literally at the epicenter of most of these protest movements. They were in, in Tahrir Square the vast majority of the time. Now, other, other reporters and other journalists and other organizations arrived as well, but no one spoke English and could relay the intricacies of the circumstances mm. in a country like Egypt, quite like Al Jazeera English. Mm. So that became their, um, I would say actually it was kind of their swan song, because shortly thereafter, a few months later, we had the Syrian uprising turned civil war. And that quickly, as I said, devolved and became very complicated. By that point, I think there was an element of groupthink within the Al Jazeera network and, and a sort of a, an overzealousness and an excitement about scooping the world, if you will, scooping the world's media around these uprisings. And then, of course, if, it, if they turned into full-on militarized conflicts, then who does war correspondency in the Middle East better than, than Al Jazeera? Mm -hmm. So essentially, these were their stories to cover. And, and also, in, um, Adil, they, they were really successful and interested in 
amplifying the voices of ordinary people on the streets of the Arab world. This is also a function of the way in which they approach journalism. They were looking at it from the bottom up. Mm. They were interested in participatory journalism. They were interested in the vivid experiential aspects of coverage. They were very keen on making sure that journalists are local in those places. So the journalists are local, the stories are local, and there was plenty of time to cover them. So all of this became really captivating, particularly in the region. And But also during the war in Iraq, they were the only ones that showed the horror of the war, which made them a target for the Bush administration, and they bombed their facility in Baghdad. Absolutely. They were bombed in Baghdad, and they were also bombed in, in Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, uh, yes. In fact, another under-discussed under issue is the extent to which Al Jazeera English has been able to successfully cover the multiple wards in Gaza as well as the various kind of bombing campaigns against in Lebanon in 2006. So Al Jazeera has been really at the forefront of U.S. military might and imperial intervention for many, many years in the region. Now, the irony of all of this, again, just to kind of contextualize this for, to listeners, is that virtually all, I would say at least 90% of all bombing, aerial bombing campaigns in the Middle East had aircrafts that departed or at least refueled at yeah. the Odaid Air Force Base in Doha, Qatar, which is not very far at all from Al Jazeera's headquarters. So all of this is to say that Al Jazeera was able to show that it can do things that a typical news organization shouldn't, given its proximity to a strong ally of the United States. Uh, which, of course, added to its to its accolades. And admittedly, you know, one has to give credit where credit is due. The station has received a huge host of international awards in journalism for the work that they've done. And the, some of the work is so stellar and so precise and so moving that it's the type of stuff that will live on for, for decades to come. Like a mass, There's really a massive archive of phenomenal journalism produced by Al Jazeera English over the years. Uh, but at the same time, having said that, the region itself is now sort of imploding in complicated ways that has rendered the Al Jazeera product far less appealing mm -hmm. and far less interesting to audiences. Uh, there's a growing, not only a disenchantment, but an almost fatalism when it comes to watching Al Jazeera's content nowadays. People are not looking for nuance, but rather there's a fair amount of sort of self-driven, self-absorbed, narcissistic, like contrarian politics that is happening. And people are no longer watching the news on Al Jazeera or elsewhere with the same kind of deciphering lens. There's a lot of dismissiveness. People watch news on Al Jazeera and other networks and say, well, this is just fake news, or this isn't real. Or this particular reporting is not true or it's it's false in, in a number of ways. And that has really hurt our ability to relay with any degree of conviction the emotional appeal and the emotional experiences that people are living out in the region today. There are those who argue what you're saying about Al Jazeera is not really limited to Al Jazeera. Many media organizations, to some degree, of course, some of them are controlled by the state, like, for example, RT or Press TV that is mm -hmm. transmitted out of Iran or Al-Alam. But 
Big media organizations are either funded and owned by multinational corporations or the state or political interests. So why single out Al Jazeera? Why should we look at Al Jazeera in an exceptional way? You're absolutely right. I think the problem is precisely around exceptionalizing Al Jazeera. But admittedly, we've all participated in this sort of exceptionalizing of Al Jazeera. The fact that it was perceived as the only network in the region to be doing what it does. The fact that it may be perceived Mm -hmm. as the only station producing content from the global south. The fact that it's perceived to be the only network willing to commit a sizable proportion of its journalists Mm -hmm. to covering some of the least perhaps compelling stories from areas of the world that are rarely discussed. These are all things that have rendered our perception, our view of Al Jazeera as exceptional. But when it comes to the political economic structure of the station and its existence in a geopolitical circumstance that has media organizations either you know, serving corporate interests or statist interests, Al Jazeera is not just not exceptional. They are literally (laughs) the same as virtually any other network in the region today. So you're right. There's nothing exceptional about Al Jazeera today, but we've had to arrive at that. Mm. And we've arrived at it as a function of the way in which their coverage has shifted. If it weren't for this shift in coverage, we would still be talking about how Al Jazeera is exceptional. But today, Al Jazeera is the other side of the coin for various other networks in the region, like Al Alam from Iran, Press TV, even networks like Mayadeen, which supports the Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime, and Al Arabiya broadcasting very positive and complimentary messaging about Saudi Arabia, or some of the Egyptian private networks, of which there are at least 20 or 30, all of whom are responsible for making sure that the Egyptian regime is presented in the most positive light. So really, they are all essentially the same. But there was a time when Al Jazeera was perceived as exceptional. And I have to say that I'm myself and many other scholars who started working on Al Jazeera from its inception are responsible for this exceptionalizing by merely looking at the subtitles of my works on Al Jazeera that date back to the early 2000s. One of them is the story that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. I mean, that's pretty hyperbolic. (laughs) It has been a humbling experience for the journalists in Al Jazeera who have over the years discovered that the sky is not the limit, that Mm. the pie is not in the sky, (laughs) that you have to work within a structure that can be restrictive editorially as well as various other impediments. Mm. But it's also been a wake-up call for a lot of scholars who were extremely enthusiastic about the networks in general and then forcing us to really be much more empirical in our analysis so that we're not so knee-jerk and reactionary and, and, and overly... Also, part of it also was because it provided a very unique view on the events in the Middle East, and it served really as a vital news source for millions who lived under anti-democratic and repressive rules. So it was a place that they could go and get something else that was less suffocating than what they were getting on their state media. That is correct. Although I have to say that whenever there are regional conflicts, you will often see that the news organizations on either side of the conflict are typically quite good at demonstrating and reflecting the oppositional voices on the other side. 
What Al Jazeera did well is that it served as a platform for critical journalism for the entire region, that it was doing so in a fairly even-handed egalitarian way towards everyone, short of Qatar, of course. And that has quickly dissipated. And with that dissipation, the view of the network as a station that is able to do so with independence has also become a lot more opaque. So how would you describe Al Jazeera English? Where would you place Al Jazeera English in the very populated, polarized media ecosystem that we are faced with today, and specifically in the Middle East, with repressive governments trying to control the media, jail journalists? I mean, I would say that Al Jazeera English is an absolutely necessary part of the media landscape today. I think if it were to cease to exist or to be shut down or to be shackled in some ways, it would be a fairly significant loss for anyone who values unfettered access to the experiential lives of human beings around the world in some of the world's hotspots, but are in some ways being sidelined or subordinated to the more trend-setting metropolises. So I think that the loss of Al Jazeera would be a big deal. It is a really, really substantial player. Having said that, there's a lot that Al Jazeera English can do to improve the quality of its work. And as I've said in 2002 and 2003, when I first started doing research on Al Jazeera, the key here is for them to be independent from Qatari foreign policy. If Al Jazeera English is able to avoid the pitfalls of Al Jazeera Arabic, then not only will they weather the storm, they will also be able to perhaps be the exceptional network that people want them to be. But is that even possible? No, at this point, I don't think it's possible. I think this is pure utopia. But nevertheless, one has to take into consideration that Al Jazeera is at least far better and far more substantial and far more worthwhile a network than many of its competitors on a global scale, especially when it comes to the region. But of course, that is not mirrored by the Arabic network locally. That's, I think, one of those circumstances. If anything, I think another lesson that could be learned there was a time when everyone was saying, Al Jazeera Arabic is so fantastic, there should definitely be an English network. Now I think we're at the point where we want the Arabic network to, to mirror the values and approach of the English network. There's a lot that the Arabic network can learn from the quality and the wherewithal and the stature of the English network at this point. So what has been the reaction in the region to Saudi Arabia demanding the closure of Al Jazeera? Well, that's an interesting question. I think besides a fair amount of conflicted and confrontational and sort of contested conversation that's happening in the social media and a few articles here and there, by and large, it's been rather quiet. Hmm. The supporters of the network, many of whom at this point, the Arabic network specifically, uh, many of whom happen to be either supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood or various other Islamist groups have been much more vocal in their defense of the network and the need for them to continue existing. Also, the Palestinian community online has been especially vocal in their defense of Al Jazeera because Al Jazeera has done amazing things 
in placing Palestine as front and center in many of the regional quagmires. Besides that, it's been really rather quiet. The chorus is much louder internationally, in fact, with Reporters Without Borders, Committee for the Protection of Journalists, and various other international human rights watch, Amnesty, and various other organizations and civil society organizations coming out and declaring their support for Al Jazeera's continuation, Mm. condemning any challenge to that. But in the region, it's been rather quiet, which I think is exactly what the GCC countries in Egypt have been banking on. They realize that they're doing this at a time when the total audience market share for Al Jazeera Arabic is probably at its lowest. The repercussions and the overall popular response is likely going to be muted. What about independent, local, and progressive uh, media outlets? What about them? Have you seen any reaction coming from those outlets? Many of them have come out and reported the story, but did so without the desire to find themselves in the same boat as Al Jazeera. Again, it depends on their political stripe. Many of those independent news organizations typically fall left of center, which means that many of them have at some point in the last few years found themselves at odds with Al Jazeera's coverage because of its more center-right-leaning approach to doing things. So even though they come to the defense of journalistic freedom, they typically don't come out in full support. Also because they themselves are seeing the space in which they can operate being increasingly suffocated. So the last thing that they want is to follow in the footsteps of Al Jazeera. Keep in mind, Al Jazeera is a substantial network with a huge budget operating in a sovereign state. Those independent organizations are much smaller and don't have the means. Mm. And so they're extremely vulnerable and precarious in comparison. It makes sense for them to walk a very fine line by not being so focal in their support of Al Jazeera. But they nevertheless have demonstrated their condemnation, lightly noted, but their condemnation of this process. But they unfortunately do not represent a large enough constituency of readership, at least not enough to to reverse what the GCC countries are doing as far as their course seems to demonstrate. How do you think this 20-year-old experiment has changed the media landscape in the Middle East and also people's expectations about the type of news and information that they need to get from their media? Well, I think the experiment itself has had some really remarkable effect on the region. Now we have a real interest, a curiosity in journalism that is not necessarily beholden to either corporate interests or state interests or regime interests. We also have a genuine interest in investigative reporting, a genuine interest in open political debate. All of these things are now enshrined in the audience's expectations. And that is not something that will go away. Even if Al Jazeera was to cease to exist for whatever reason, perhaps this pressure or otherwise, the seeds have already been sowed. That's going to live on indefinitely. And I think Al Jazeera will get credit for having not only incentivized this, but essentially laying down the tracks for this type of transformation. And that translates into a generation of journalists 
from Al Jazeera or having been trained at Al Jazeera Journalism Academy or people who have watched Al Jazeera and emulated it. So it's a generation of people, both as audiences and as professionals, who are now enriching their respective media systems in their own countries and in their own communities. So that's something Al Jazeera to be credited for and has will have a long-term mm-hmm. effect. In 2014, Al Jazeera Media Network launched its online-only channel called AJ+. So what do you think about AJ Plus's performance and content and the fact that it has tried to reach an audience that is both young and increasingly mobile? AJ Plus was Al Jazeera's answer to what it was described at the time as the blunder of Al Jazeera America going for cable at a time when most people were moving online. Al Jazeera America ended up shutting down after a short number of years. But AJ Plus was perfectly timed and very nimble, very sharp, beautifully curated short video packages that serve as news explainers, and in some cases, short reports, and also Vox Populi type interviews with people in the streets or in a particular incident or at an event. All of those have been really, really popular, and AJ Plus has really marked itself as a worthwhile production in that regard. But it is a very competitive field, and in the online spaces, if you strike gold, everybody's going to be at the mine. So the competition has been so large and so vast and so aggressive that the market share for AJ Plus is shrinking the more players there are in the field. And so now you have at least somewhere between five and ten. News organizations are moving in that direction anyway. BBC and The Guardian and and everyone else is producing these short video packages. But there are some companies that are doing just that, producing short video clips. And those are immensely popular. So now the brand of Al Jazeera will continue to be the type of content mm. that they're curating for those videos. But the medium itself or the genre itself is no longer unique. And that's essentially how Al Jazeera has been operating. They break new ground and then everybody else joins. And in many instances, they watch themselves lose market share gradually and then try to figure out what the next big thing might be. AJ Plus has done an amazing job, I have to say, and I hope that your listeners are familiar with it. And if not, they should be. But nevertheless, it is becoming increasingly competitive. But that's their way of tapping into a different audience share. And they will continue to reinvent these new audiences. So for instance, the Al Jazeera family of networks also launched a huge Really, that I think is probably their largest investment up to this point is a group of networks called Be In Sports. And Be In Sports is really a colossal undertaking. It's an all sports networks that you have to purchase a device and it allows you to access all of Be In's live coverage of sports. It's predominantly soccer. So that's how they've been able to break into markets in Europe and in Latin America. And they have exclusive rights to coverage of many of the leagues around the world. And that's a very, very different kind of investment. But that's also part of the Al Jazeera family of of networks. And also is another way in which the Qatari government or Qatar as a country wields its influence politically through sports and diplomacy alongside news. In essence, the ingenuity and the innovation and the creativity and the constant kind of paying attention to where the trends might be on the part of the upper management at Al Jazeera is quite admirable. But nevertheless, 
one has to keep in mind that even though the intention is not to generate money because the profit is not necessarily the intention here, but rather the influence, that should also kind of raise questions as to what it is that either Al Jazeera or the Qatari government wish to do. We are not exactly sure how this conflict or this crisis is going to resolve itself. But what do you think Al Jazeera is going to look like if it survives the Saudis' assault? What type of journalism do you think we should expect from Al Jazeera based on what we are witnessing right now? Well, it still forces me to do some forecasting. But I suspect that if Al Jazeera were to survive it sort of won't survive because mm-hmm. if it outlives this particular circumstance, it will almost certainly have to submit to certain concessions. And these concessions would translate into a far less clawless and defanged organization that's not capable of doing what it was set out to do. And if it relents to and capitulates to pressures from Gulf countries and Egypt and others, it will cease to be what Al Jazeera was meant to be at the outset. So I don't think that they will necessarily survive if they continue. I think that there is a good possibility that Al Jazeera English will weather the storm because I don't think that they are necessarily the target of this particular attack, but they will almost certainly need to change their tone with regards to Saudi Arabia and to to sort of disown or repent from the kind of coverage that has happened over the last month or so. This, this is, is a, a very, work in very progress. It is a work in progress, and it's a very difficult time for Al Jazeera and for anyone who works in it or has been an avid follower of the network. This is really an existential crisis. Adil, I want us to end on a positive note. A couple of years ago, you and I were at a conference in Beirut, in Lebanon, where we saw amazing, amazing journalists, Lebanese, Egyptian, Jordanian, Tunisian journalists, Bahraini journalists, and they were doing environmental investigative journalism. They were covering social, political, local issues, and they were training new journalists. So tell us about some exciting new local, independent, progressive journalism that is coming out of the Middle East and North Africa that we should pay more attention to as opposed to focusing only on a specific premier and big news organizations. Thank you for ending on this note, Malia. I think you're absolutely right. We're so busy looking at these sort of larger geopolitical patterns and trends and obsessing over the larger news organizations, when in reality, the trenches are really about the direct one-on-one experiences that people have at a basic community level. And honestly, I think there's no time that's more exciting than today in the region. Because as these larger networks begin to consolidate and start sounding more alike, we start seeing these incredible organic experiences in local and community journalism proliferate all over the region. In Egypt, of course, the more notable example is Mada Masr, but there are many other examples of smaller community newspapers and networks and community radio shows that are popping up and YouTube channels where people are producing their own news, essentially. And we're talking about places that have not been known for news production at all, places in the Nile Delta in the north, south of Alexandria, or all the way down to Upper Egypt in places like Qina. It's a really exciting time. The same thing is happening in Tunisia, where the four or five top 
corporate and state news organizations are no longer where people get their news. Instead, they're turning to community radio stations in their respective towns and villages, and that there is a real thriving journalism online. Take, for instance, in Jordan, where you have a very, very concentrated media system that is governed by a very draconian legal system that suffocates any media practice. And despite that, there are organizations like Heber, which has focused its coverage on the most disenfranchised and most progressive voices in cities like Amman, but also branching out to Zarqa and Salt and places that were essentially off the radar completely. Mm. Even in countries like Iraq, where you have at least 30 years worth of death and destruction, have somehow been able to produce a thriving online journalism, whether it's in the north, in Kirkuk, or all the way down south in Basra. You have new experiments in media production and journalism that we're not privy to here. And many of them are in Arabic, so we won't be able to really follow them unless you understand the language. But and also in Syria, Adel, where absolutely. they are trying to be witness and tell us about the horrors of this war under the most difficult circumstances. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so many amazing experiences and people who have put their lives at risk to bring forth phenomenal stories and for a small number of audiences. But that is the incremental growth, and that is the grassroots growth of journalism in the region. As exciting as Al Jazeera has been over the last 21 years, it is functionally a top-down news organization created by some of the wealthiest people in the region to essentially dictate specific agendas. They provided voices, but these voices are now more and more being empowered to take matters and the instruments and the tools of media production and journalism production into their own hands. And that is part of the reason why journalism moving forward in the Middle East is going to be far more exciting in the next 21 years. That was Professor Iskander speaking with Melihi Razazan about the Saudi-Qatar crisis and why Al Jazeera Network has become such a target for Saudi Arabia and its allies. Adel Iskander is an assistant professor of global communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He is the author, co-author, and editor of several works, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, and Al Jazeera, the story of the network that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. He is also co-editor of Jadalia Electronic Magazine. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can always reach us via our website at vomena.org slash blog or send us an email at info at vomena.org. You can friend us on our Facebook or find us on Twitter 
at twitter.com slash womina underscore radio. On July 9th, world-renowned Arab-American scholar Professor Jack Shaheen died at the age of 81. Dr. Shaheen spent much of his life battling stereotypes of Arab-Americans and Muslims in American pop culture, and as he put it, quote, a dangerously consistent pattern of hateful Arab stereotypes that rob an entire people of their humanity. His works include The TV Arab, Guilty, Hollywood's verdict on Arabs after 9-11, and Arab and Muslim stereotyping in American popular culture. He is best known for authoring Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People, which was adapted as a documentary and for which he studied more than a thousand Hollywood films over a span of more than a century. Here's an excerpt of the documentary Real Bad Arabs, in which Professor Shaheen discusses the history of vilification of Arabs and Muslims in Hollywood. For 30 years, I've looked at how we, particularly when I say we, image makers, have projected Arabs on silver screens. In my latest book, Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People, I looked at more than 1,000 films. Films ranging from the earliest, most obscure days of Hollywood to today's biggest blockbuster. And what I tried to do is to make visible what too many of us seem not to see a dangerously consistent pattern of hateful Arab stereotypes. Stereotypes that rob an entire people of their humanity. All aspects of our culture project the Arab as villain, 
That is a given. There is no deviation. We have taken a few structured images and repeated them over and over again. You are hostages of the holy freedom by whether one lives in Paducah, Kentucky, or Wood River, Illinois, we know basically the same thing. Listen to the sound Jesus. of our God. We know the mythology. The mythology, namely Hollywood's images of Arabs. We inherited the Arab image primarily from Europeans. In, in the early days, you know, maybe 150 years, 200 years ago, the British and the French who traveled to the Middle East, and those who didn't travel to the Middle East, conjured up these images of, of the Arab as the Oriental other. The travel writers, the artists who fabricated these images and who were very successful, as a matter of fact. And these images were transmitted and inherited by us. We took them, we embellished them, and here they are. When you cross the mountains of the moon into our country, Mr. Tyrone, you will be stepping back 2,000 years. We have this fictional setting called Arabland, a mythical theme park. And in Arabland, you know, you have the ominous music, you have the desert. We start with the desert, always the desert as a threatening place. We add an oasis, palm trees, a palace that has a torture chamber in the basement. The Pasha sits there on his, you know, posh cushions with harem maidens surrounding him. None of the harem maidens please him, so they abduct the blonde heroine from the West who doesn't want to be seduced. When we visit Arabland, we must be aware of the instant Alibaba kit. Have. We have the property masters of Hollywood going around and they're cladding the women in see-through pantaloons, belly dancing outfits. They're giving the Arab villains scimitars, you know, these long, long scimitars. We see people riding around on magic carpets, turban charmers programming snakes in and out of baskets. Yesteryear's Arab land is today's Arab land. You are late. A thousand apologies, oh patient one. You have it then. I had to slit a few throats, but I got it. Disney's Aladdin was seen by millions of children worldwide. It was hailed as one of Disney's finest accomplishments. But the film recycled every old degrading stereotype from Hollywood's silent black and white past. Oh, I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Now, how could a producer with a modicum of intelligence, just a modicum, of sensitivity. Let a song such as that open the film. But this moves way beyond one song. You must be hungry. Here you go. You'd better be able to pay for that. Do you know what the penalty is for stealing? No! No, please! The Arab is one-dimensional caricature. Cartoon cutouts used by filmmakers as stock villains 
and his comic relief. And so over and over we see Arabs in movies portrayed as buffoons, their only purpose being to deliver cheap laughs. You see this in the Joey Heatherton film, The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. Every night I was forced to perform unspeakable acts with circumcised dogs. Well, dogs are better than sheep. They're cleaner, I know, I've tried both. And over and over again, they're portrayed as inept. So, in a movie like True Lies, not only are the Arabs dangerous, they're also incompetent. I, we are all prepared to die. One turn of that key, two million of your people will die instantly. What key? That key! Who's taken the key? One actor who excels in his portrayal of Arabs as buffoons is Jamie Farr in Cannonball Run 2. I have a weakness for blondes and women without mustaches. All the stereotypes are here. Too rich and stupid to know the value of money. Get me 12 sweets. Better yet, the entire floor. And of course, he's oversexed, lecherous, uncontrollably obsessed with the American woman. Here, my desert blossom, give the change. Have you ever considered joining a harem? And so another pattern is the lecherous Arab. In Jewel of the Nile, Sheikh Omar tricks Kathleen Turner. How? He convinces her to come with him to Arab land. Then he imprisons her. You stay here and you write what I tell you to write. We see the same sort of ominous seduction and protocol. The entire plot revolves around an Arab emir's infatuation with the blonde, blue-eyed Goldie Hawn. In the Bond film, Never Say Never Again, Kim Basinger is abused by the most sleazy-looking Arabs imaginable. She's tied to a pole, stripped to her underwear, and auctioned off to primitive-looking Bedouins. And in Sahara, Brooke Shields is also kidnapped and presented to the lecherous Arab sheikh for his own perverted pleasure. Get away from me, you dirty More than 300 movies, nearly 25% of all Hollywood movies that in one way or another demean Arabs contain gratuitous slurs or they portray Arabs as being the butt of a cheap joke. We were going in a Mecca seat and the plane is full of Arabs with these animals, goats, sheep, chickens. I mean, they don't go anywhere without their goddamn animals. We had to put plastic in the cabins. You know, they urinate, they defecate. You have films by Neil Simon, like Chapter 2, the beginning of the film. The protagonist arrives back from London, and, and his brother says, How was London? And he says, Full of Arabs. How was London? Full of Arabs. Well, imagine if he had said, Full of blacks, full of Jews, full of Hispanics. I mean, that's ridiculous. Why do we do these things? We gotta bite. One of the most offensive films with the gratuitous images, Father of the Bride 2. It features Steve Martin selling his house to a Mr. Habib. Justin, we like house very much. When you can move out. Excuse me? The Habibs would like to buy the house, George. It's exactly what they've been looking for. It's when you can move. 
We need house a week from Wednesday, and my wife wants flour dishes in kitchen. You sell, we pay top dollar. When Habib's submissive wife tries to speak, he shouts gibberish at her. And then he offers Martin a $15,000 cash bonus to move out in 10 days. Making real estate history here, When Martin tells Mr. Habib that he doesn't want to sell the house after all, he finds Habib's wrecking crew there, ready to demolish his beautiful home. <laughs> and in a scene that calls to mind one of the most degrading stereotypes of the Jewish people, Mr. Habib demands an extra $100,000 to sell the house that he has owned for just a day back to Martin. You want me to take out a loan on something I owned free and clear just 24 hours ago? Well, that is up to you, George. Your path, your offense, your memories. Now, if you looked at the other Father of the Bride films, Elizabeth Taylor, Spencer Tracy, there were no Arabs or Arab Americans. So why does Disney inject these horrific, sort of offensive characters in Father of the Bride Part Two? It's the same reason that in Gladiator, the slave traders who kidnap Russell Crowe and bring him back to Rome are Arabs. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, why does Hollywood inject Arabs, scenes of Arabs, and or slurs demeaning Arabs in movies having nothing to do with the Middle East? So you're sitting like I am, for example, watching Back to the Future about a mad scientist. And yet, early on in the film, we see these ugly, inept Libyans with machine guns in a parking lot trying to gun down the protagonist. I mean, why? This movie wasn't about the future. It was the same old stereotyping from the past. And the same goes for Hollywood's view of Arab women. The Arab woman today is bright, intelligent. She's someone that, 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 who is exceeding in all professions. And yet this reality still is being denied us on silver screens. The highly sexualized belly dancer has been with us from the beginning of Hollywood's history, inspired by early images of the Orient as the place of exoticism, intrigue, and passion. But in recent years, this image has dramatically changed. The Arab woman is now projected as a bomber, a terrorist. Added to this image is what I call bundles in black. Veiled women, in the background, in the shadows, submissive. It seems the more Arab women advance, the more Hollywood keeps them locked in the past. Politics and Hollywood's images are linked. They reinforce one another. Policy enforces mythical images. Mythical images help enforce policy. Jack Valente, president of the Motion Picture Association of America, has said, quote, Washington and Hollywood spring from the same DNA, end quote. The Arab image began to, to change immediately after World War II. There were three things that impacted the change. 
the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, in which the United States has unequivocally supported Israel, the Arab oil embargo in the 70s, which angered Americans when gas prices went through the ceiling, and the Iranian revolution, which increased Arab-American tensions when Iranian students took American diplomats hostage for more than a year. These three pivotal events brought the Middle East into the living rooms of Americans and together helped shape the way movies stereotyped Arabs and the Arab world. One of the primary changes, the image of the Sheikh. In a movie such as Rollover, he's out to take over the world with his money, or he's up to no good trying to buy chunks of America. Mrs. Winters, I think I should tell you there are those in the family who do not think we should be making this offer at all. I assume if you could have found venture capital of this sort for a company like Winterchem in America, you would not be coming all the way to Arabia looking for it. You see the oily shake in Spielberg's Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. You see the money-grubbing sheikh who's out to commit all kinds of terrorism and launch a missile in earnest in the army. Gentlemen, behold my special club, the Pluton missile. With it, I will bring the infidels to their knees and be leader in the Arab world. One of the myths in the 70s was that the Arabs are coming over, buying up chunks of America. And of course, this was reflected in the cinema. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. One of my favorite movies of all time, racist though it may be, is Network, about commercial television. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. How do you feel? Network features a TV anchor rising to superstardom. How? He unleashes wild rants against the system on the air. But he directs the angriest of all his rants at Arabs, who he says are buying up America. They're buying it for the Saudi Arabian Investment Corporation. They're buying it for the Arabs. The anchor, Howard Beale, calls on the American people to rise up and stop the Arab buyout of his TV network. Listen to me, goddammit. The Arabs are simply buying us. There's only one thing that can stop them, you. The rage of Americans you. in response became one of the most famous scenes in movie history. I want you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and write a telegram to President Ford saying, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore. This kind of anger, the anger born of fear, all of it in response to a perceived conspiracy and threat by a specific group of people, well, we've seen and heard this before. If we look at the anti-Semitic propaganda of the Nazis, at its core is an identical type of economic threat this economic myth even made its way into children's books. Sadly, the popular image of Jews in Nazi propaganda resembles the popular image of Arabs in some of our most beloved Hollywood movies. The only difference being that the Arab usually wears a robe and headdress.
On July 9th, world-renowned Arab-American scholar Professor Jack Shaheen died at the age of 81. That was an excerpt from the documentary Real Bad Arabs about the history of vilification of Arabs and Muslims in Hollywood, which was based on his seminal book by the same name. For more information about this week's program, visit vomina.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.